going to jump back into our study through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, this morning in chapter 11. But before we go hear from the Lord, um, let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you, humbled in your presence, delighted in your presence, and we, we bask in the knowing the privilege of that presence as we worship you together now. We do thank you that you are holy, and that you purge out from us all that is unholy and unclean, and Lord, that you are gracious and that you are able to deal with us in our sin, in our brokenness, and we thank you. Dear Lord, that you are merciful and you are indeed able and powerful to lift us up in our weakness and in our frailty. That you are strong and good and true and gracious. We pray as we turn to you again at this time and we turn to your word and as we listen to every word that comes forth from your mouth, that you would place that word in our hearts, that there we may begin to love you in new ways and place it in our minds that we would understand your ways better. Touch our wills by that word, that we may submit our wills gladly to your perfect wisdom and sovereign will, so that all of our life we may learn how to glorify and to enjoy you forevermore. And so we pray, dear Lord, as we come to you again, and we ask, speak, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please turn your copy of the scriptures. To 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll be reading uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Please give your full attention, this is the word of our God. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if she were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was made from woman, but Uh, Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is a way a wife, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. 
for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures uh, forever. And he had his bliss, blessing to it as we hear it proclaim now. Uh, we come again this morning, brothers and sisters, we jump right back into 1 Corinthians. And as we do so, it is helpful that we regain our bearings regarding Corinth and the flow of the discussion, uh, Paul's uh, arguments to the church there. And so if you're an outline taker and you like like to know what's coming ahead and organize your thoughts, um, we're going to be looking at the context again, reminding ourselves of the context before and what's coming. We're going to look at a particular word in this passage. Uh, we'll just begin to dig into it this morning. Uh, we'll finish it next week. But So we first have context, and then we're going to look at this term uh, that is translated head for us, and it's the word kephale, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And then we're going to look at the covering, right? some things of what that might be talking about, and then we will uh, give a conclusion uh, to what we are looking at this morning. So again, context, kephale, covering, and conclusion. First, some historical context, some reminders to us of what Corinthian was, uh, what was going on there, what kind of a place it was. The city of Corinth, as you will remember, was on the isthmus uh, that connected the Peloponnesian Peninsula with the mainland of Greece. Uh, This location made it flourishing. It was a flourishing trade traffic. Right, Much trade went on there, and other travelers would come between the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean region where these cultures would come and be in contact with one another. It was a Roman colony, so the laws and the customs of Rome were prominent, including such things as Rome's uh, polytheism, and that polytheism, you'll remember, was state-mandated. Some other factors in helping us understand Paul's letter here regarding Corinth, the city of Corinth, The community and culture there, again, was driven from a Roman, not a Greek model, by and large, even though many immigrants uh, came from Greek cities to Corinth. Uh, This can be seen from archaeology, right? As they do archaeological digs, and they they see a number of Roman and Latin influences outnumbering 29 to 1 those of Greek, right? So Rome was very uh, prominent there. The things of Rome, the culture of Rome... um, And this has an implication on how we understand some of the things going on as we read them from Paul. Um, Also, the Corinthian community had a culture, uh, the culture itself, right? The community and the culture was a prosperous one, right? It was prosperous. It was was self-sufficient. Even though there were uh, poorer, more vulnerable, dependent Christians, it was a prosperous uh, city by and large, a cosmopolitan city, if you will. Um, and lastly, we've, we see that the, the, the trade there, the business and the entrepreneurial pragmatism uh, that some have referred to this in the pursuit of success, uh, those were central to the community and the tradition of the culture there, the city culture. And so the prominence of Roman patterns of culture and the custom of the city, it's important for us, again, as we seek to comprehend certain details of Paul's epistle. Um, there are things that are lost to us that we just will not understand that were understood to the Corinthians. That does not mean, however, um, that they were lost. Right? This is God's holy, inspired, preserved, inerrant word. We have exactly what the Lord 
desired for us to have. Um, but we'll look at some of these things. Right. One of these things, for instance, is the, the practice of women wearing hoods in public, specifically in public worship. And we know from this Roman society that women that were married in this Roman society to appear in public without a hood would communicate specific things. It could communicate, uh, at worst, sexual availability or, at best, the absence of concern for respectability, right? a lack of concern for that. But this is central to understanding the main thrust of our passage this morning as we begin to look at it this morning and we'll finish next week. Um, but another factor that speaks to Cor- uh, Corinth's Romanness uh, and, uh, and customs regarding women is the fact that the Greek games uh, and Hellenistic festivals were celebrated there, right? So while it was a Roman-dominated culture, the Greek games and these festivals of Greece were celebrated there. And Paul uses imagery influenced by these athletic events. You probably call to mind uh, as you think about them. And it's been found that athletic contests for women were, uh, as one historian put it, a striking innovation in the Isthmian festival under the empire. Right, so women, women uh, athletic superstars, so to speak, right, and this was an innovation, a striking innovation for the time uh, in that culture, um, and this could possibly demonstrate a non-traditional, a non-Jewish, a non-Greek view of women in that area of Corinth. Uh, we know from other passages in Scripture, uh, such as First Corinthians sixteen eight, um, cross-reference that with the Acts eighteen, that speak of this letter and what, what Paul is doing. We see that Paul wrote the letter from the city of Ephesus while he was there sometime in the early 50s AD, near the end of his time there in Ephesus. First Corinthians deals with, as we have seen, several key issues. As we discussed uh, prior to our break in the summer, one issue that seems central throughout Paul, throughout is Paul's desire to have a church that is fragmented from pride Remember, a personality-driven church and these issues that had arised were fragmented. He wants to take it, uh, the, the, the church is fragmented from that to return together for the sake of the gospel. Return together for the sake of the gospel. Paul writes to the Corinthians explaining that their behavior and their practices were contrary to the gospel and they were contrary to living in the, to living the new creation life. Right? And so he instructs them thusly, uh, in the chapters that we have been going through leading into chapter 11, uh, we've seen Paul discussing some very important issues, right? And again, remember, these aren't disconnected data that have nothing to do with one another. There's a flow of argument. There's connectivity to what he's saying. Um, rights and liberty, right? One's rights and liberty, even as a believer, are not the only or even the most important factors to consider in life. Right? It's Paul, a point that Paul makes. Christians must consider what is beneficial and particularly what builds up and what edifies and strengthens others. Very important for believers to do so. Um, This certainly filters down into our lives, even in 2019, brothers and sisters, right? All the time we can be reminded of this and um, convicted of our lack of doing this. We are to live as God's children, as his people, to his glory in every dimension of our lives. And living for God's glory connects to that second great commandment of loving others, right? Living for God's glory results in loving our neighbor, right? 
And so 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul had declared, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever it is, all to the glory of God. And so as believers, we are to live for God's honor and praise by ordering our lives accordingly. And so we move from that, verses uh, chapters 8 to 10, as he's been discussing things, to the next four chapters, verses uh, 11 to 14. Um, and this section of Corinthians is unified by focus on a particular thing, and that particular thing is corporate worship, right? What the people of God do when they come together in worship. Uh, and so these chapters, right, what, what do we do? How do we act in worship? In our text this morning, Paul is dealing with, in this first half of chapter 11, the adornment of women. In the second half of chapter 11, Paul will look at the behavior of the church at the Lord's Supper. And then after that, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul discusses spiritual gifts in some depth. And so that's where we've been and where, we're going, where we are going in broad strokes. The context of our passage before us this morning. But let's turn, there, turn now to chapter 11. Some of the great questions that the Corinthians, um, some of the questions they were asking Paul in their letter to him, remember Paul is responding to a letter written to him, and he's writing back, giving him his answers to these things, his admonitions, um, his teaching. Um, and one of those things was, had to do with the aspects, aspects of public worship. Right? But let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul begins giving them an admonition. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And again, Paul is about to give them an answer regarding uh, head coverings. And in doing so, he describes three relationships. Right? He describes the relationship of man to Christ, and then of wife, a woman to man, and then of Christ to God. Right? In verse 3, that's very clear. Um, man to Christ, woman to man, and then Christ to God. The theme of this whole section, verses, what's to follow down to verse 16, is this that there is a God-designed, ordained difference between the sexes that is a pre-fall reality and that is analogous to the relationship between the Father and the Son. And those roles and distinctions are not to be violated, confused, mixed, or ignored. All right? I'll say it again, and if you'd like me to email you this theme that I've worked out, uh, I will do so to spare your writing. But the theme is this. There's a God-ordained um, and design difference between man, man and woman, between the sexes, that is a pre-fall reality, right? The differences are not a result of the fall. They're a pre-fall reality, the way that he created man and woman. And it's analogous to the relationship between the father and the son. And those roles between them, the distinctions between man and woman, are not to be violated, confused, mixed, or ignored, Right? Uh, and so hopefully that will lead our thinking the next, uh, this, this week and the next. Um, one of the wonderful and beautiful benefits of living in Christ's church and being committed to Christ's church and to Christ's way is the benefit of history and experience and perspectives that are not your own, right? Uh, what I mean is that because we are surrounded by one another, and our experiences are unique, we can learn from one another things that we wouldn't otherwise learn without our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I was recently reminded of some of the great and wicked abuses 
that have gone on in the name of authority and obedience. Um, I'm very thankful for that reminder because my experiences and my perceptions are not the only experience and perceptions, and neither are yours, right? It's, it's wonderful to have one another to learn from each other. And some have struggles with or have been victim to abuse or authoritarian abuse, physically or psychologically. Some have been required obedience that was without love, that was without tenderness, that was without calmness, that was without prayer, that was without embrace. All these things that believing parents are required to give to their children. And they are to show love, the love of Jesus to their children in every way as the basis of who they are before their children and with their children. Some, it's true, have been mistreated. Some have been hurt and damaged. Damaged from lack of love, from demanded, harsh, painfully punished obedience. And so I'm thankful to my brother who reminded me of these things uh, last week. And you know, there are people in the church, we have to remember, who are more sensitive to things than others, that others may not be sensitive to. Right? We should have, I should have eyes open and a sensitive heart to being aware of those things. And I want to be, we should want to be aware of those things and sensitive to them. So I'm thankful for the body of Christ to deepen me in these ways. Um, it's a glor- glorious part of our sanctification and as our growth and our, as I said, deepening. Uh, it is part of God's plan as we grow and aid and correct and perfect, uh, protect one another. Um, we've seen similar damage done. I mentioned that. We've seen similar damage done by some from our passage this morning. Right? Our passage this morning in regard of man being the head of the woman. Similar damage has been done historically, we've seen. Uh, here in chapter 11, this is a text that has been used inappropriately, misogynistically, uh, suppressively, even abusively in ways against women and against wives. Um, not all cultures or all men have done this or committed these sins. Some have. And we need to call it out as sin when we see it. Uh, as we will see, the different roles between men and women that Paul lays out here and explains here in no way diminish or should suppress women's value or worth or dignity. In fact, he amplifies and he exaggerates this reality, as we'll see next week. There's the difference in roles. It's not mean a difference in value at all. It's the difference between being and function. It's very clear. Paul mitigates against this with precise words that he uses. Uh, and in fact, as you all are probably aware, it's God's word that revolutionized the way that women were viewed in culture and in around the world from very uh, real, really chattel property from that, just seeing as property to image bearers of God, right? The message of Christianity is that man is created in God's image. Oh, and yes, women too. Men and women are image bearers of God. We'll look at that in a little later. But look at verse 2. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 11, where the section begins, Paul says this, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Paul starts off here with a word of praise, uh, commending them for what? For remembering him and that they maintain the traditions delivered to them by Paul. And this is one of those texts that reminds us that tradition is not always a bad word. All tradition is not a bad thing. In fact, the, the apostle commends them 
for maintaining it. Man's tradition, tradition not in accord with God's word, tradition contrary to God's word, that is a bad thing. But Paul here means that which was handed down or handed over is that thing that Paul tells Timothy later on to guard. That which was handed down to him from the apostles, the apostolic teaching. What did the apostles teach? That which Jesus taught them. That which the Holy Spirit uh, carried them along and reminded them. They are ambassadors. They speak for another. So Paul commends the Corinthians for maintaining that which was handed over to them, that which was delivered to them. They held firm to the traditions as they were traditioned to them. The word is related. And so it wasn't stuff that Paul made up. It It was the facts of the gospel, the teachings of Christ's apostles. And then Paul moves on in verse three. And again, he gives these relationships and he says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And in this verse, we come to the second point from our passage, that Greek word I mentioned uh, earlier, right? We looked at context. Now we're looking at this, this concept of uh, kephale is what it is. It's the word that we translated to head. Um, it's an important Greek word. It is hotly debated as to what it means um, because it has ramifications of where you stand on a number of issues, how your theology um, unfolds. Again, the word means head. We get a handful of words from it in English, mostly uh, medical words or scientific words uh, or words in biology. For instance, the word uh, encephalitis. Right? You see the word in the middle there? Encephalitis, right? It means inflammation of the brain. Um, there are little creatures with big appendages from their heads called cephalopods. Right? That's the word we get uh, from this word as well. Uh, cephalopod, kephala. Um, and here... Paul gives three instances of of this headship. Again, man to Christ, woman to man, and Christ to God. But what does it mean? What does it mean? More specifically, um, again, just as our word in English, head, can have multiple meanings, there are different, there's disputes about what it is that that, that Paul is, how, how he's using this word. Some insist that he means head as in authority, or headship in this verse, 1 Corinthians 11.3. Others, and I think more likely, I would lean in this direction, um, that kafale means source, right? Source, like the source of a river, the head of a river. Right? Maybe a double meaning there. In 1 Corinthians 11, the meaning is likely not about man's authority over a woman, but more probably he is referring to an event in redemptive history. Right, and that event in redemptive history would be what? It's that the woman was formed from the man. Right? We read about it in Genesis chapter 2. The man is the source of the woman. Later on in verses 8 and 9, uh, we see this confirmed. Right? For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Right? And so he uses the same language and the same terminology in this analogy. Man was formed by Christ at creation. Christ derives his authority from the Father who sent him. Of course, Christ was not created, but he was sent by the Father in his incarnation. 
right? As he came and took on flesh and executed that with, with which was uh, given to him uh, his work here. And the Father's will is the source of Christ's redemptive work, right? And then none of these analogies, we have to remember, is identical to one another, and none can be forced too far. But Paul's desire is to show here in this passage how some relationships are based upon one party being the source of the other, and how when shame comes upon one, it therefore brings shame on the other. So we go from context to kephale, head, uh, to our next point, and that is the covering. What is Paul talking about when he talks about in verse uh, 3? When well, he talks about it in the section that um, uh, of the covering, right? Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Right? Paul moves from this broad theological point in verse 3 to begin to flesh out what he means by that in verse 4. Uh, the text is explaining why women must be careful about their appearance in public worship. And later on, Paul will show that the creation order is at the core of what Paul is arguing here. Right? This is the core of what he's arguing. Paul will get into that, but man was created first, so Paul starts his discussion with man. What about man? He says their, men's, their heads must remain uncovered. If they do not... Then they pray and they prophesy improperly. What does that mean to cover or not to cover the head of a man? There are a number, number of things that Paul may have been referring to in these verses, in this passage. Uh, a number of considerations as to what is in view regarding this and the purpose for not doing so. Right? A handful of the, one of those views is that since man is the image and glory, verse 7 here tells us, uh, is God's image and glory, men aren't to veil that glory in worship. Paul may be referring, may be uh, desirous to avoid the Jewish practice of praying and preaching with a head covering uh, with a prayer shawl. This could have, why? Why would he have wanted to um, avoid that? Uh, it's because this could have given a legalistic image to the Gentiles who didn't understand the Jewish practices. Thirdly, men covered their heads during times of mourning. So Paul doesn't want men to pray and preach like they are mourning. This is kind of self-evident, right? Why wouldn't he want them to do this? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory. No mourning for us, brothers and sisters. And so Paul for the Corinthians, no mourning for you. Uh, and then finally, some considerations or reasons why uh, what this is about is that some members of, of cults wore head coverings, Right? Paul doesn't want Christians to look like or identify with members of cults. We don't know for sure exactly what it is. Many of these things we, we need to consider. We don't know if it's one of these reasons or a combination of reasons are in view. But it seems clear that Paul's point is that for men to cover their heads when praying or preaching would bring shame to Christ their head. We'll get into more of the details of this next week and finish up this passage there's a lot going on here. But notice the contrast and the juxtaposition of some of what Paul is saying here to try and bring, bring a point of clarity, to focus in on something. He talks about disgrace and shame. 
and honor and glory, on the other hand. They're talked about throughout this text. They are set in contrast, right? The language of honor and glory on the one hand and dishonor or disgrace or shame on the other hand. That's the contrast in context against which we must read this passage. Honor and glory. And this connects to the passage here, to what immediately came before. Paul's arguments against idolatry and what was going on there in chapters 8 to 10. Paul's concern was that the Christians did not partake of food sacrificed to idols. Why? Because in their eating and drinking and whatever they do, in all their behavior, at home or in public or in church or in work, in their clothing and dress, the primary concern ought to be to bring honor to God and to glorify God. What did we begin with? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And this passage, therefore, is connected directly to this concept of glorifying God, bringing honor to God in your customs, in your culture, in your dress, how you dress in public, how you dress in worship. And that ought to to determine what you do at all times. One of those mitigating factors, determining factors, that ought to be determined by what brings honor and glory to God. And what is the contrast? Anything that would shame God or bring dishonor to God or disgrace God or his church or Jesus Christ, those things we ought not to do. We must not do those things. Which is why verse 4 says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And not only his literal head, but metaphor, his metaphorical head, Christ, who is the head of every man. And so you can see that his concern here is the honor of God and the glory of God. Our behavior bringing glory to God and never doing anything that contradicts that honor and that glory that is due to God. Christ himself has brought up several places in this text. And we'll come back to look more at this later. But you see Paul appeals to man being created in the image of God and bearing the glory of God. Again, verse 7 says that. Since he is the image and glory of God, Genesis 1 tells us that man was created in God's image. It doesn't use the word glory in Genesis 1 there. It does use image. However, turn to Psalm 8. Turn to Psalm 8. We see the exact same thing. Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5 tell us this. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned him with glory and honor. So Paul appeals back to creation and to man as the image of God at creation and the glory that he bore, the honor and glory, the glory spirit, if you will, that he bore as the image of God at creation, which which is something that he lost in the fall, but it's something that is restored in Jesus Christ, right? Who, by the way, is the second man and the last Adam, whose image we will bear in the world to come. Here's the jumping off point. 
to the gospel for us. I want you to zero in, and, and if you zoned out, I'm, I'm uh, inviting you to zone back in at this point. Uh, this text is very closely linked to what Paul will go on to say in chapter 15 later in 1 Corinthians regarding man's glory and the glorification of man and of Jesus Christ, whose image we will bear in glory. Paul says that the head of Christ is God. And that needs to be understood in terms of their, again, functions and roles. This is very important for Paul as he unfolds this. There is an, uh, Christ, the, the persons of the Trinity, right? This is kind of basic theology, are, are ontologically in their being equal, right? Paul uses this analogy to say, yeah, men and women are too, in their being equal. But in their roles, there are different functions that they do. And they, we need to understand this in terms of roles and functions, not in their being, right? There is only one God, one being, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Amen, we affirm that. But in terms of their roles and functions, the Son is subject to the Father. The Father is the head of the Son. The Son does all things for what? For the sake of the Father, to bring honor to the Father. Everything the Son does in all of His behavior, the Son's aim is to glorify the Father. We see this clearly in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He rules out, uh, uh, Christ rules all things for the sake of the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. I'll read the number of verses here. We see this. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every and power. For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in, in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Right? And there it is again. Paul fleshing out this gospel truth that he articulates in a very concise way in verse 3 of chapter 11, that the Father is the head of the Son. What does that mean? How does that look in action? How does that look in terms of work and behavior of Christ and what he does in bringing honor to his head, the Father, and how that ought to be determinative of our actions and how we as men ought to do all things to bring honor to our head, Jesus Christ. This is how, uh, this is how it ought to be lived out in our lives. And if you look again at chapter 15, we see more of this connection with the gospel as it is in chapter 11, right? Listen again, 1 Corinthians 42, listen for those distinctions and those uh, contrasts. 1 Corinthians 15, and begin at verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown natural, a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, are also those who are of the dust. And, it is the, and as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Right, and I hope your your spiritual juices are getting flow flowing here. This is a glorious truth. Think of the first man, Adam, created after God's image. God crowned him with what glory and honor when He created him. And yet, despite all of that, he is only a man of dust. Man of dust. He's a dusty man. Man of dust. His glory pales in comparison to the glory. Of the second Adam, the, the second man, the last Adam, the life-giving spirit. And it's not the glory of the first man that Christ has recovered for us, but his own glory that he shares with us, you who belong to Jesus Christ. Again, listen again. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 47 to 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There it is. Right? When, when he gets to chapter 15, goes, Paul goes on to unpack these doctrines from chapter 11. And he unpacks them and he develops them. And he brings together in this glorious, explosive, culminating way for us, dear Christian. These wonderful truths, this reality. He tells us that, uh, that, that how this looked in the life of Christ and how this looks in terms of the gospel for us. That we've been recreated in Christ Jesus in the image and likeness of God and have once again in Christ been crowned glory and honor. And that glory and honor that we have in Christ is far greater than the glory and honor that Adam had in the beginning. You see that? It's not as the old song said, let's just get back to the garden. No, you're not returned back to that state of the first Adam, but of the greater and glorious Adam, the last man, the life-giving spirit. And so, so therefore, since this is the case, dear Christians, this ought to influence and determine and impact our speech and our actions that in everything we do, everywhere, even down to the point of eating and drinking and our dressing, our whole life should be determined by this one fact. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ, your head, and that his glory and honor, which he has received from the Father, he shares with you. And that should have great impact on all of your life. Not to get that glory, but because that glory is yours in Christ. And you're united to him. So that's Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 11. This is much greater and much grander and glorious uh, than whether women should wear hats in church. 
So let us go forth from this place, brothers and sisters. Let us go reminded and refreshed again in what we have in Christ. Let us go renewed in our conviction, our determination to do that very thing, bring honor and Jesus, our glorious head in everything that we do, in all of our acts, in all of our thoughts, indeed in all things, may we delight and glory in seeking to bring honor and glory to the one who gave his life for us to give us his glory and honor. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we delight to hear your word. Lord, we give you praise that you sought fit to do so. Give us your word, Lord. We pray that you would help us to long for that word, to uh, comprehend that word, to grow and be changed by your spirit working through that word. We do praise you for the way that you work, for your wonder and love and your great mercy and your work amongst your people. Lord, we long for you and for a closer walk with Jesus. We find our life there. We see who we truly are what is really promised to us. And may we not despair, but rejoice, seeing that you're going to bring honor and glory to your name and you are going to fill your kingdom from every tribe under heaven. And Lord God, we pray that as your word goes out and that you, you, you would feed that you would feed your people here and around the world. And so Lord, we do pray for our missionaries this morning. We pray, protect them. Give them stamina. Give them focus. Give them Uh, the passion and vigor uh, and clarity that attends that calling. Be with their families. Lord, we do pray for this congregation as well. We remember this morning the Copland family. We pray that indeed they would all, uh, that you would keep them focused on your word and on their Savior and all that they do and that they would indeed do all for your glory. We pray, Father, for the Dan family as well. We pray give them wisdom um, and strength and stamina um, to establish uh, and maintain a home that glorifies you, that honors Jesus, where they raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, we pray for the Deming family as well. We ask, Lord, bless our brother Marion. We pray for uh, his continued comfort. We pray that you would continue to hold him close, that he would trust in Christ's purposes in all of his life. Lord, we pray for all of those who suffer in your midst here this morning. Lord, we pray, encourage them. Use us as the body of Christ in that encouragement. May you grant to them, Father, we pray, the comfort of your spirit and the the peace that transcends all understanding. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling, not merely physically, but mightily against sin, they're struggling spiritually in their lives, Lord. This, this describes all of us. Father, we pray for those who are in deep battle, and deep sin. Father, we pray, grant them victory over those things. May they see who they truly are in Christ, dead to sin, once and for all. Lord God, may they live in newness of life. May that be true of all of us. Help us, Lord, increase our faith Give us hearts that cling to you. 
even for all of us, Lord, married or single, young or old, help us to have hearts indeed that are filled with your love and care, so caring and loving one another that you just might use that for the outside world to see and be captivated in wonder. What is different about these people? Lord, we pray, use us in our lives to witness to your glory. We pray that you would feed us afresh this day with Christ, the bread of heaven. And as we have heard your word to us, Lord, may we see that this is our life and our sustenance, even in the midst of famine. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we can come before you and we ask all of these things in the name of our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.